some people are going to luck out and they'll make a ton of money and you can go live on a beach somewhere. But most of us, we're going to work for most of our lives. You should just settle into that fact and try to make it enjoyable to do that thing. Hey, everybody. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Welcome to Indie Rails. Today, we have a special guest on the show. His name is Matt Gordon. And before I get too deep into introducing him, I want to tell you how he came to be on the show. This was a couple of months ago. I was probably just scrolling Twitter or something. I really don't know how I came across his website, but I either came across his Twitter profile and then made it to the website or just came across the website. But when I made it to the website, it just immediately struck me. And one of the coolest things is the homepage. And it says, it's the company description. It says, we're a team of friends who build awesome software together. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And then I started, who are these guys? And I went and read their Who We Are description. And it says, in 2007, Jason and Matt started a company that they could work at forever. Bootstrapped, working on their own terms, hiring the kind of friends they wanted to go on a vacation with, working on products that made life just a little bit better for everyone. Along the way, they've tried a lot of things, grown a little bit, and made a lot of customers insanely glad to know expected behavior. So that really resonated with me. And I immediately sent it to a friend of mine, Bryce. We shared some ideas. I was like, yeah, that sounds like a really cool company. That sounds like a company that I would want to own and or that I would work for. Or if I was a client or customer, I would want to do business with. And so a lot of things you see on the internet, a couple of weeks go by. And then we find ourselves at Blue Ridge Ruby. And First day, Matt Swanson comes up to me and says, hey, come over here. And he like pulls me aside and he pulls out his phone and he says, hey, you got to talk to these guys. And I, I look at his phone and I'm like having this deja vu. And I'm like, who are these? I know these guys from somewhere. And after the conversation, I realized that these are the people that I sent my friend Bryce to. And so I was like, universe is telling me something. We got to talk to these guys. And so Matt made an intro, Jeremy and I started talking. And so here we are. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for being on. Yeah. Welcome, Matt. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we want to find out a little bit about your history, but before we dig too deep, tell us a little bit about expected behavior in its current state. Okay. So there are uh, seven people employed at expected behavior. Six of them have worked here for quite a long time. And just here in June, we hired a fresh college graduate, which is not something that we wore the first time we hired somebody fresh out of college. And are all of those people software developers or little sales, admin, project managers? We have one person whose job is to do uh, product strategy marketing, James. One person who handles you know, customer interaction, Jonathan, support and sales. And then Zach is our newest hire, who's dedicated to DevOps. I can explain more about that and why we made that hiring decision later, if you're interested. Jason, obviously co-founder, the CTO, and does development. Nate is also a software developer and is still working on DevOps while he helps train Zach. And Tony is our designer and does user experience. He's a full stack developer. He could do absolutely anything, but he's an incredibly talented designer and is not as enthusiastic about, I don't know, networks like I am. I am sometimes a software developer. It depends. This year, I have not been a software developer. One thing when you run a small business is 
you've got to pick and choose what kind of tasks you're going to do for what's valuable for the business. Right now, I'm more valuable as CEO than being a software developer. So that's what's going on there. Give us just a summary of your company. You guys have several software products, right? I guess SaaS products. Can you give us a highlight? Is there one, two, three, handful? So there's currently two. We've never had more than three. Our oldest product is DocRaptor. It is an HTML to PDF solution. I think it's the best one, obviously. <laughs> we made that first, put it out in May of 2010. It's been a long time. Yeah, that's long. another thing I failed to mention when I saw your site. I saw several products that I recognized as well. So that was another connection. And we love that one. I think if you had told young me that we were going to run a, a PDF product, I would have laughed in your face. But <laughs> it, is, it is great. And it solves a problem that we had a lot back when we were consultants. Is that still your biggest product? Oh, yes, by far. And we're so fortunate to have a partnership with Prince XML based out of Australia. Because from a technical perspective, taking HTML and turning it into PDF is basically like writing a web browser and writing a complete PDF spec implementation. And then you also need to write a fully scalable SaaS application on top of it and do all the business stuff. And so us working together makes, makes Dograptor possible. They are great partners. It's crazy because I'm just, I'm actually investigating a new PDF rendering solution for a client of mine and Doc Raptor came up and also like looking at Prince XML and as well as like just looking for solutions like Grover or Ferrum for using headless Chrome underneath to generate PDFs. But Doc Raptors is very like high on my list currently for options. So yeah. Well, we'd love to have you. I think it would be foolish to admit that like we're not always the best solution for every situation. Things have certainly come a long way since 2010 in that area. Like we were motivated because we were consulting for a very large company and they wanted everything to be turned into an HTML report and a PDF. They actually didn't work complaining at all about the cost. We just didn't enjoy the work. So we're like, yeah. how can we make it easier? And we downloaded this Ruby library, which absolutely worked, but making like a 10 page PDF took, I don't know seven or eight gig of memory at like many minutes. It was just bananas how much resources were required to make a simple PDF. Anyway, I'm a little off track. So DocRaptor, which we love. We recently sunset Instrumental, which was our application monitoring product. That was a really tough choice for us. We loved that product. And I think we still miss it a little bit. There were things that Instrumental did that as far as we can tell, nobody else does. I was a longtime user, and so I also miss it and want to dive into that. <laughs> the super short answer for now is if you want to run a small company, which we do, then you've got to make choices. You can't have an infinite number of products, even though you probably got an idea every day of some cool thing you could make. And Instrumental was our young product at, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. We wanted to make something new. And so... That's the position that we found ourselves in more recently. We're going through ideas and deciding what we want to make. And we hadn't been fully happy with our project management situation for some time. Like it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't up to our standards. And so we actually brought back an old product of ours long, long ago when we were only consultants and we were trying to be competitive. We made our own project management solution called Burnout. 
And in my opinion, it gave us a pretty significant edge over our competitors because of its ability to help us interleave many contracts. So we could say yes to more contracts per person and still deliver on budget and on time. And somehow when we moved from consulting into product, we convinced ourselves that it was different and we didn't need this tool. And we were wrong about that. A few years had gone by and we're like, man, really wish we had burned down. So we've remade that product and it is available now. So you can go to projectburndown.com. It's still very new, so it is not nearly as featureful as it was back in 2009 or whatever, but we're excited to have it. So did you do a complete rewrite or did you just bring up the old Git repo and start updating or what? <laughs> oh, I tried, but I think there were two things about it. One is pretty old, 12 years since we last worked on it. And we left it in a pretty good state in terms of that thing, but it's just a lot of updating, like a lot of those gems weren't available. And it can be pretty tough to bring something up to date uh, when you can't start from a, a safe working state. And it was also the case that there were a lot of decisions that we made. Maybe we're good, but we weren't sure anymore. So there are some design choices that were like, I think now that we've got a lot more experience with running a business, and particularly with deciding how we can make products that are good for us and also maybe good for a lot of other people, if we make some different choices, maybe it'll be more palatable to more customers. So we started over. When did you launch that product? Oh, January. This January, 23? Mm -hmm. How have you found it going so far? So far, so good. Project management is a very deep hole, but we're getting a little bit of traction and some interest, and we're getting a lot of what I call signal, a thing I look for when we're working on something new or trying to improve something is really, is there something that we can measure so that when we make a change with the intent to improve that measure, it happens. And as long as that's still happening, I view that as a good sign. When you can't figure out anything to change that changes anything meaningful to you, then you've got a problem. <laughs> and of course, well before we even put it out in the world, we were using it internally, I think in maybe August, just to dog fooded ourselves. And we immediately noticed an improvement in our ability to communicate about our priorities and keep everybody on the same page. So, I mean, one of the reasons why we chose Burndown as our product is because we knew that even if nobody else liked it, it was going to make our business better. Yeah, that's a nice position to be in, right? You're sort of hedging your bets. If it doesn't sell, at least you're making your life better and probably saving at least some expense on other tools that you could be using. And it's hard to put a price on people being happier and more confident that they're working on the right thing. So let's take a quick rewind back to how you guys got started. What was going on before 2007? Did you know Jason? at the time? And like, how did you get into tech? Okay, well, I mean, how did I get into tech? I mean, that's like me toddling along. Like when I was lucky, you so, see, you know, when I was growing up, my dad started a computer networking business. It was in our house. And so I was always, you know, he'd like have some junk printer and let me take it all apart and try to put it back together, which I did enough of to know that I don't love hardware. I don't get me wrong. It's very cool. And I wanted to exist. So if you're a hardware person, I appreciate you. Like my dad and I work super well together gift he gave me pretty recently is he restored by hand the Mac that I played on when I was a kid. That's oh, cool. cool. Like he took the whole thing apart and like replaced parts like by hand. Oh, wow. Anyway, so I did a bunch of that and I decided there was a point where I love video games and I was spending more time optimizing the performance of the video games. 
than actually playing them, which was a signal. So when you were growing up, you were into tech and was that always a goal of yours to go into that industry? Oh yeah, I loved it. There was this one time we went on a road trip as a family and my mom would do a thing where she would take us to the bookstore and tell us that we could buy one book, any book. So I bought, and this is a very long time ago, I bought HTML. That was the title of the book. <laughs> and it's, I know you can't see it. It was, you know, it was this big. And I think it was just the HTML spec with some oh, commentary. Oh, wow. <laughs> and my mom was like, are you sure? Sure. Because <laughs> she knew that I was going to have to, I was going to be in the car and I was going to get bored and that was going to be a problem. But nope, I just sat there and silently read the HTML spec. Like <laughs> it was cool. <laughs> and tried to make you know, web pages, uh, which I think was my early discovery there that again, while I very much appreciate good design, that's not something I personally enjoy doing. So I always had very functional web pages that looked very bad. Yeah, I get it. And you know, continuing video game interests. And I think like a lot of people. I thought that I was going to become a video game developer. I love video games. I loved making them. Fallout is my all-time favorite. I bought those games the day they came out and played them for thousands of hours. And then I got to college and I got good advisors. And fortunately, they let me know that there are some cons maybe to choosing video game development. They just made me more aware of some of the life choices that went along with that. So still love technology, always wanted to be a software developer. I knew that for sure. Even when I didn't know what degree was going to get me there, I knew what I wanted to do. Now, what about entrepreneurship? Did you say your dad was in the networking business or he owned a networking business? He owned one. Hmm. Okay. So you probably had early entrepreneur or were introduced to entrepreneurship early on, right? Oh, very. Yeah. To me, it was just the most natural thing in the world to, to start and run your own business and go out in the world and get customers. And yeah. Was that always a goal of yours at some point to wind up there? Yes and no. I thought that my career path might be a little more like in and out of like normal career and entrepreneurship. It wasn't really until I met Jason that I veered much more toward entrepreneurship because I was excited about it and he was excited about it and I had a partner and that changed things for me. And how did you guys meet? So we both went to Rose Holman. It's a college in Terre Haute, if you haven't heard of it. It's a very small school with grad students, which there are not very many of. There's 2,000 students. And it really only does undergrad. And we were on the same freshman floor. And we were in the same Calc 2 class. So we met in December of 2001. And this is one of those like super fast friendships where like we just started talking. And we just barely, we never wanted to stop talking to each other. There was so much to say. You went from zero to best friends overnight, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, Rose is a what I would call a collaborative learning environment. They really encourage you to do your work with other people and your projects in particular with other people because they think that you learn better that way. So I think in all of college, the only time that we ever did anything like we did humanities separately and like he took a, a computer vision class which was not for me but we did all of our projects together and we decided when we were freshmen that we were going to start some kind of business together we thought it was going to be a hosting company and then also later convinced ourselves that, that was not a good idea so you guys were, were sort of dreaming this entrepreneurial path early on in college did you just start 
making side projects right then in college or did you both kind of go off and do some full-time employment first before you got to expected behavior? I can't believe that it never occurred to us to write and launch some kind of web-based money-making thing while in college, but we never talked about it. We always talked about after college. I did some freelance consulting work while I was in college just to make ends meet, but somehow it never occurred to me, hey, there's this guy that you really like working with that you do everything else with that you could make money with. That just didn't occur to me. And that's simultaneously because we talked about it all the time. And like we made sure that we took the entrepreneur classes at Rose and we took those together and tried to apply those learnings. And we had a plan. So by our senior year, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. And we're taking these classes and we're like, yeah, we just don't feel like we know enough. And Jason suggested that it might be responsible to at least have one real job as an adult, one normal employed position where it wasn't solely on us to make business decisions to eat food, just try it out. And I think that was a great choice. So we both got jobs and we saw what that experience was like. And when we felt like we had learned enough, we sat down and applied to Y Combinator. Oh, oh, cool. I didn't know that. What is that process like? Do you go in with a business idea and submit your application? That was 2006. So I don't know what it's like these days. But at the time, it was just a written application where they asked questions about what specific business idea did you have? Why do you think it will make money? Who is the founding team? Why do you think the founding team is qualified to execute this idea? You know, very reasonable ideas when you're trying to evaluate if you're going to give somebody your money. It was your idea. Oh, boy. So it's called Recommendy. And we did, in fact, make Recommendy. We still own the domain for this thing. The idea was... So back in those days, websites like Dig and Reddit were very new. And our complaint was that there just wasn't enough control. Like Too much of it was just noise. And we were constantly recommending things to our friends and our friends were recommending things to us. But it could be hard to keep track of those recommendations. So what if we made a news aggregator site that was push-oriented? So... I'd be friends with you guys and I'd be like, oh, you know, this is a really great article about helping technical entrepreneurs get started and and run a profitable business. I think you'd be interested in it. And I'd push it to you. And then when you log into Recommendy on your front page, you'd see something that looks kind of like Reddit, except that it would be from me specifically saying, I think you should read this. That's cool. I love the idea. Honestly, I still love it. It seems like it was that. A way ahead of its time because now there's so many things that are basically just recommendation engines, right? Mm-hmm. So we pitched this idea and they rejected us. And uh, we're like, you know what? That's cool. We're responsible adults. We'll make a plan and we'll save money and we'll just do it ourselves. So we did. So you're still working your full-time job at this point or did you make a leap? We sat down and we wrote down a list of every expense everything down to like frequency of oil changes Hmm. and amount of money that it would cost and then performed cost optimization and determined the amount of money for the amount of runway that we wanted. And then we saved that amount of money. And then when we had that amount of money in the bank, we quit our jobs and moved into Jason's mom's house. (laughs) So we could get free rent. How much runway did you have? Was it like three months, six months, a year? We planned for it to be six months. 
Okay. And we made it work for 14. Oh, wow. Nice. We really clamped down. Like we were, let's say, a lot more generous. So when we were in college, Jason and I, we were living on like $2 a day eating at Taco Bell. You graduate and you get a software development job. You make a little more money. Start to get a little relaxed. You start going out back on Friday nights or something. <laughs> yeah. So we pulled that way back and we're eating like 25 cent pizzas from Sam's Club or whatever. You don't really help save money because if you don't ever go anywhere or do anything and your food costs 25 cents, it lasts a long time. And I think we were really fortunate that Jason's mom and grandma were so flexible. And then we would help us out there. Like, you guys have to live a life. So like Jason's grandma would be like, you have to come out and, and eat at this restaurant. <laughs> you, just, you must. I will pay for it. Yeah. Which was great. Did y'all start working on Recommendy? That's what the goal was? Yep. So we started working on Recommendy. Was that in 2006 or 2007? That was in 2007. So we incorporated the business in January. And then we moved to Cincinnati from Indianapolis and a horrible snowstorm, poor planning on our part. And Jason's mom was this beautiful old house. And it's like at this tremendously steep driveway at an angle with this tremendously steep hill. And we had hired these movers to move our stuff. And so these guys are down there and they're standing in like, like knee deep ice water, trudging up the hill and we're in the attic. So they're trudging oh, mercy. up a hill, <laughs> a slope in ice water, up three flights of stairs to this attic over and over again. I felt really bad for those guys. They were so... It seems very foreshadowing for starting a business. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, so we moved in and like we really didn't do anything. We didn't even unpack the boxes. Honestly, I still have like... There's a box with my CDs in it that I packed in that apartment that I have unpacked. It's in the attic in my current house. We got our computers out and we started working. And we worked... 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week on Recommendy for almost 14 months. And it had so many features, way too many features. Some of which I think are very cool and some of which were absolutely not. Because we just didn't have an understanding of all the different kinds of things that you need to do to effectively run a business. And we were trying to learn, but there was just so much that we didn't know. And eventually we had to be honest with ourselves that we didn't know enough and we weren't going to know enough before we ran out of money. So we needed to make a change. And that change was? We switched to consulting. We definitely could make software. And after over a year of doing absolutely nothing, I mean, we even worked on Christmas Day. Like we did nothing but Ruby and Rails for over a year. I was going to ask if you were doing Rails at that time. Yeah, we had like a whole like part of that pre thing is like we evaluated every language and framework to decide what was going to be good for us. And I think we really lucked out there because being, let's say, purists at the time, we didn't pay any attention to the popularity of the language or any like business factors. We just thought that Ruby and Rails were amazing technology and we wanted to be a part of it. Fortunately, other people think that too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When you decided to start consulting, did you have any prospects at that time or were you just like, all right, we got to go find a client and get some money? I literally looked sales up in the dictionary. (laughs) (laughs) We had no idea what to do. Nothing. We eventually worked it down to, we made a list of every job board. And then we split them in half and we went through every job post on every job board that we could find. And we applied to all of them. Oh, wow. It was hundreds. 
of jobs. And we got one. And these were development jobs? Yeah. And the first one that we got, we were not being picky. We were like, whatever it takes to keep expected behavior alive, we're going to do it. And so it was a development job for a PHP social media network startup. They were having some feature throughput problems. And that wasn't our top choice. But you know, we did it and they paid us. And then you're getting started. You just gotta be helpful and do what you gotta do, right? You don't get to be picky. Yeah. And we did that thing again. And this is where really like sometimes luck just strikes you. We did it again. And this time it was seen by a guy that worked for a company that contracted with a company that outsourced some work for Apple. Oh, wow. Hold on. What was seen by your application? Mm -hmm. Okay. Like the entire job listing was just dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign. Send me a code sample you think is cool. That was it. But since we were applying to everything, like these days, I would probably would have just looked past that. Yeah. We applied to everything. I'm like, oh, cool code sample. This is easy. I did nothing but write cool code or code that I think is cool and recommend I'll pull something out and send it to this guy and explain why I think that it is cool. And what I sent him and was like, hey, Apple needs this thing, but they need it two days from now. Can you do it? What sort of thing was it? Can you tell us? You know, on the one hand, I think probably they don't really care. But also, I'm fairly stickler for doing the things that I said I was going to do. And I said I would never say. So (laughs) it was software that people in public have used Hmm. that I was excited to work on. Yeah. But it had to be two days because... What piece of code did you send them? He said it was from Recommendy. Yeah. Oh, okay. I missed that. Yeah, it was... Man, it was some meta magic code that I had written to alter the way that callbacks worked when certain conditions were met. So that it's not the kind of code that I would write today because there's such a thing as too much magic. But it definitely demonstrated that I had a sophisticated knowledge of Ruby and Active Record. And I th- he was looking for the hardest core people because they only had two days. The only reason they were out there fishing was because all the sane people had said no. <laughs> <laughs> so you take this job and what happens? Well, I think in this case, for better, Jason and I had a habit in college of doing our projects in continuous hours. So if we thought it was going to take 70 hours to do a project, we would work for 70 hours in a row. This is a bad idea, but it is what we did. And so it made us very prepared for this situation where we just worked for 40 straight hours without sleep. And we delivered and it worked and they were very happy. And that opened some doors for us with all of those companies who appreciated that we were good participants. And that really made it possible for us to have enough leeway to learn more about sales than just what the dictionary has to say. <laughs> and we set recommending entirely aside at that point. I want to be clear about that. We weren't like working on it in the background. We're like, we're done with this for now. We're going to be consultants. So that opened the door to, they were recommending you to other clients or other parties that were involved in this project that you were working on? Yeah, we got more work and more divisions in Apple. And we got more work from other clients that are less famous, but were equally enjoyable to work for. I have never worked as an employee at Apple, 
but my consulting experience with them was among the best consulting experiences I have ever had. They are supremely well-organized business, which is probably reflected in their balance sheet. I want to just point out that you said this is a stroke of luck, and we talk a lot about this on the show about luck and randomness and serendipity, but you would have never come across that if you weren't putting yourself out there and just answering every one of those opportunities and looking for opportunities. So it didn't just land in your lap completely. That's true. I mean, you miss all the shots you don't take. A lifelong position that I have had is focus more on what you want and less on what you think you are capable of, because you'll often trick yourself about what you are or not capable of. An analogous thing that like in the research, I'm enthusiastic about reading fitness and health research, like papers. Mm -hmm. And a fun fact, so like growing muscle is often about how many more reps you could do when you quit. And if you ask somebody like, how many reps of bench press could you do at 100 pounds? And they'll give you their best answer. And all but like the most elite people will be super duper wrong. The best way to know is to just do it until you can't do it anymore. Until you fail. Yeah. <laughs> just don't pay attention. I'm like, I don't know how to write a sales email. I don't know what these people are looking for. I don't even know if this is a good idea, but it's what I've got. We're just going to do it as hard as we can. And that worked out a lot in our business career. So it sounds like consulting for a good while. How did you make that transition back into product development? The economy kind of made it for us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 2007 to now has covered a significant amount of economic turbulence in the United States and the world. And things got good for us for a good while. So in the summer of 2009, we moved to Nashville, Tennessee. We were just going to travel around the country and do our work. And we were having so much success that we were like, we had this big project coming up in the fall. We're like, this would just be a lot easier if we hired some more people. And so we had this plan. We're going to move to Indianapolis and hire a couple of friends of ours. And we're going to live in this one guy's house and we're going to train them up on Ruby and Rails because that wasn't technology they were familiar with, although they were excellent developers. Three months and then we're going to head on out. And that project was a disaster. It was a classic, poorly negotiated, too many middlemen. If we had turned away from the contract, we would have gone out of business. But I think in the end, we ended up making less than minimum wage. And the consolation for us as we headed into the new year was that we had a fully booked slate. Like We were going to work full-time in all 2010 at a good hourly rate, no sales required for good, solid clients that didn't pull the kind of shenanigans that just made our Q4 terrible. And then mid-January rolls around and the housing crisis finally catches up. And these big corporations that were easy to work with and dependable canceled our own cancelable contracts. And we went from having a full slate of work to having pretty much no work. And was it just you and Jason at this time, or did y'all have onboarded employees at this point? We had added two partners, which I think is probably generally important to us in the history of expected behavior, but maybe not in the amount of time that we have on this podcast that Jason and I were pretty enthusiastic about having partners more than employees. And so we had onboarded these people as partners with a significant share of the business. And they were being pretty good sports about being paid a very great deal less than we had promised them. More than good sports. They did not complain. 
even though they were right too. So it's the four of us and Jason and I are living in this guy's house and we had promised three months and that came and went and he was cool about that. And so we made a change again and I switched from being a developer to being full-time sales, which may be relevant to the technical people out there. But in terms of answering your question about product, May rolled around and we're like, we just had nothing to do. And we're talking about what we could do that would be valuable. And we're like, well, what a lot of companies do is they find a common problem that their customers have and they make a product around that. What's the thing that costs our customers the most money that we don't like to do and they don't love how much we have to charge them for it? It's making PDFs. Like PDF reports are really valuable in a lot of situations. I mean, it was very difficult at the time to make it. So even a very simple PDF was costing our customers thousands of dollars. And we're like, okay, well, we have a pretty good idea of how to fix this. We know about prints and we know how to make web applications. We'll just make DocRaptor and we'll put it out there. And we did not have a designer at the time. I strongly encourage you to go to archive.org and look at the Wayback Machine, the very first DocRaptor website. Oh, let link that up. It's special. <laughs> and the day after that, so that year, I think I had like 500 sales meetings. Wow. And on top of all the networking events that I went to. And so the next day at lunch, I was talking to a guy that was a couple years ahead of us at Rose and he had just started his startup and was looking for a way to make PDFs. And I told him we had just launched DocRaptor, which we had made in a weekend. And he's like, that sounds great because Prince has done a lot to improve their pricing and embrace a new technology. But at the time, one license of Prince was like, I don't know, three or $4,000. And he was- prohibitive, yeah. And so we were like, I don't know, what do you think about $15? And he's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, that sounds better. Yeah. And man, I think that company is still a DocRaptor customer, actually. That's cool. He sold it, and I think they sold it to somebody else, but just keeps on trucking. And we didn't say it was a sticky business, huh? It is a very sticky business. Our churn rate is incredibly low. But we didn't do anything really with that. We didn't market it. We didn't buy ads. We did nothing. I focused 100% on selling more consulting business because for years that had been a huge source of income for us and it seemed easier. We didn't really feel like we knew what we were doing with product. We made this tool and we felt like we got lucky and we got some signups and that's cool, but you know, sales. And so that was the beginning of our transition and our transition from being a full-time consulting company back to being a full-time company, full-time product company was lengthy and rocky because there was a lot that we didn't know. And today me thinks that probably there are some things that I could have done differently as a business leader that would have made it smoother. But I didn't know what I didn't know. Things like what? Well, I continued doing sales and I got better and better at it. And I think part of that was a change in my mental attitude. I've always been a little bit more of an introvert than an extrovert. It's like the first day out on sales, I went to one networking meeting and I came home and I laid on the couch for like two hours. I <laughs> get that. Whereas by like the fall of that year, I was being out on the town, meeting with people, talking with people, developing relationships, like a good like eight, 10 hours a day, every day. And I was pretty good with it. Or so I told myself. So in October, 2010, I'm doing this. I don't know. I think it's like five or six o'clock. And it's a networking meeting that I was going to go to, but I just can't make myself go. So I go home and I lay on the couch and I cry because 
we're getting work and we're definitely getting work that's enough to keep going, but it's not enjoyable work. And I'm working really, really hard to get it. Uh, Probably looking at that W-2 job and thinking that looks pretty good right now. We all were. And I'm just like, is this worth it? I kept going. And the next month, some friends that we had made, they got an incredible job from some of their friends. And in January, they brought us on work on Words with Friends. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I don't know if these names, they used to be fairly well known. So Ordered List had started working on that project. We didn't know them personally, but they had become friends with some friends of ours in Indianapolis. There's another small company called Fastest Forward, also very talented, small development team. And we were friends with them. And so Order Bliss was like, yeah, you need some more help. You should hire these guys at Fastest Forward. And they did. And Fastest Forward gets in there and they're like, yep, but there's just a lot of work here to do. I know what to tell you. You guys are just way too popular. Congratulations. You should hire these guys at Expected Behavior. And they did. And we helped them massively scale up this cool game. And it was the first time that I had worked on something that was super duper public that people really connected with that I could talk about. Like we had worked on some cool things for Apple, but I was never allowed to talk about them, but I'm still not. Whereas I'd be standing in line to get like frozen yogurt and the people in front of me would be playing Words with Friends. And That's cool. We wrote a very significant portion of the back end of that application. And that was a return to consulting glory for us, let's say. Things got much, much easier. They liked working with us and we liked working with them. They sold the company to Zynga. And all this time, you might wonder, what about product? What are you doing with product? And somewhere late in 2011, we're like, we should do something to grow the product business now that we've got consulting much more locked down. And so we hired somebody to do marketing. And for the first time ever, Raptor started growing, like actually growing. Not at a huge rate, but maybe 5% a month. You were already doing sales though, right? What made you hire an extra person for marketing specifically for that product? Well, I had no competency in inbound. All of my sales was outbound. And I converted that into word of mouth. And at least in Indianapolis, when people thought of expected behavior, they thought of consulting and not the product. We also learned that DocRaptor is an incredibly difficult product to sell face-to-face because people, when they have a PDF problem, they are interested. But people don't have a PDF problem very often. And when they've chosen one, they're not usually very excited about changing it. So what we needed more was to start connecting with people and becoming top of mind so that if they ever had a PDF problem, they'd at least come back and give us a shot. And that was his job to just get out there, get us sponsorships, Google ads, which I did not know anything about and I still don't know anything about. I've never really done any advertising and I appreciate people who do that thing. And so I was out there pounding the pavement, the one-on-one, please work with us kind of thing. And he was down doing the more like one-to-many kind of work, which is where I kind of draw that distinction between marketing and sales. So what comes next from there? Well, Raptor started growing slowly and consistently. And we really got a lock on consulting. Once I knew how to do sales, consulting got way easier. And I think that that really slowed our transition because it was comfortable. But we also made a choice where we wanted to have one company. And there is a bit of an issue there where like, 
if you want to do things on your product, then people have to do things on product. And when you're doing things for your product, you're not consulting. Hindsight's 2020, but we had a great consulting business. And I'm not sure that it was the right thing to do to cannibalize our consulting business to add work to our product business. I think that probably it would have been a great deal less challenging to either hire people to work on the product while we stayed consultants or hire people to do consulting while we transitioned to product instead of trying to do both businesses, which at the time I didn't appreciate how substantially different those businesses are. And they are very different. Would you have been able to do that from like a cash flow standpoint? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So that was a possibility, but it was a choice to say, now let's kind of like straddle these two things. Yeah. I had developed not only a very strong sales pipeline, but with burned out, uh, we were booked years in advance and I had developed a strategy of using burn down to help us systematically increase our consulting rate to what the market would bear while still making sure that we were full. So we absolutely had the cash to start hiring people, but it was against our principles. You weren't trying to get big. You didn't want to have a big company. Yeah. Okay. Now, in the history of the company, most of the people that have worked here have worked for major, major corporations. And also most of them have been entrepreneurs. So they're kind of familiar with this thing. And they're like, okay, well, there's nothing wrong with wanting to work for a big business. There's a lot of virtues to working for a Google or a Salesforce. But if you want to do that, those exist. You can go do that thing. We want something else. And so what did that look like? You just started saying no to the consulting projects? Well, because we were still using Burndown to manage our consulting work. And so the number of people available indicated to me the amount of work that I could book in a given time frame. And so we were slowly taking people off of consulting availability and assigning them the product. And by 2014, we had assigned, let's see, I think that was about the biggest we ever were. We were 10 or 11 people. And we had four or five people on product. So fully half of the company. And that created a lot of problems because Dockraptor was making money, but it wasn't making enough money for the whole company. Everybody kind of wouldn't work on the product. Maybe the people that were doing consulting work weren't so happy about earning the money that was paying our salary while we were doing the fun thing and they were doing the thing that they didn't feel was as fun. Totally reasonable position. Part of that, that was a really difficult part of that cannibalization process where like, I couldn't even say they were being unreasonable. That's a totally reasonable thing to want, but we didn't have the money for everybody. And so that created a lot of strain in the company. And those last couple of years leading up to becoming a full-time product company, it was a lot of cultural disruption because of that, which is why I think that maybe if we had handled that transition differently, it would have gone more smoothly. I think, or if we had been willing to be more patient we haven't really talked about this very much, but I think you and probably your audience is less interested in funded business and probably more interested in a bootstrap business. And while I would certainly love to own a unicorn, I think the phrase these days is a camel, camel versus unicorn. I think it's far more reasonable to build a camel and be patient. Settle in. A thing that DHH, Jason Fried used to talk about a lot. I don't know if they still do. I don't read their stuff as much as I used to. Yeah, some people are going to luck out and they'll make a ton of money and you can go live on a beach somewhere. But most of us, we're going to work for most of our lives. You should just settle into that fact and try to make it enjoyable to do that thing. For a little while, we lost sight of that and that made that less fun. 
cause problems. You can definitely see that in the personality of your company, wanting to build a business that is enjoyable to work with. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. Yeah. Looking back now, is there anything that you miss about consulting? Oh, yes, for sure. Let me tell you, every now and then, because as we were, we were toggling, sometimes people would be on product for a while and then they would rotate back to go to consulting. And everybody's favorite thing about going back to consulting is they felt way better about themselves. Why like, is that? Well, when you're the person making the product choices, as often it can be a long time between making a choice and understanding whether or not you've made the right one. And tighter feedback you, loops. Yeah. And if you've made the wrong one, it's just not as obvious if you're doing right. And when you're a consultant, it's straightforward. You don't make the business decisions. You might advise, you might be like, I think that's a good idea or I think that's a bad idea, but ultimately it's their money. And you write the software and get paid. It's much clearer. And especially if you get to be clever. When we were on words with friends, there was a lot of opportunities to do really fun like performance optimizations. I got the opportunity to make a custom version of Ruby that they ran for a little while. And it was actually a good business value for them. because It saved them a ton of money. They could run fewer servers. We made a meaningful difference in their bottom line. That's just an incredible circumstance to be in. And so I got to feel very clever and it was immediately clear that it was good. That is a much more rare occurrence when you work on product. That's sort of counterintuitive to what you hear around the industry though, isn't it? People kind of bang their heads about working on consulting and they hate having to do what somebody else tells them or not have the full decision making. But I think what you say is true. There is a lot of benefits in it. Sometimes it's what you like and it's also what you're used to. And I often view a lot of things in business as double-edged swords. As the CEO of Expected Behavior, we don't have that many people, but I care a very great deal about the people that I work with. And if I make a decision so bad that expected behavior goes out of business, it's not just my wife and son and me that are suffering, but it's pretty much like it's a ton of people that I love. It can be a heavy decision-making pattern when you're working with people you care about. So think about that. Being able to say that we work with people that we can and do go on vacation with is awesome, but it also adds some other factors. Whereas when you work for a big company and you like the people you work with, but you go on vacation with different people, mental load can be different. This actually is very close to a question that I really wanted to ask you, which is from my personal observation and experience, it can be a really challenging thing to go into business with friends. And I generally, when I talk to people about it, I say, I don't want to go into business with friends or family, primarily because of the entanglements around how business connects to those relationships that I care about and the potential either for the business to have struggles or the relationships to have struggles or both. So how have you made that work? How have you, like, it seems like you've got this long-term success here. What do you credit that to? So when Jason and I incorporated the company and we sat down with his grandma's lawyer and he's like, okay, how do you want to split the business? And we said 50-50 and he's like, no, you don't. We're like, yeah, we do. And he's like, no, you don't. And he explained why. And I feel like everybody knows why, but we did it anyway. I do think that it was very fortunate Jason and I believe very strongly in a principle of all problems can be solved by talking. There have definitely been points in the history of the business where we have talked for actual days or weeks, like hundreds of hours about a disagreement that we had. And it was not always the most fun, but being mutually committed to that principle got us over some humps that we might not have otherwise gotten over. 
So one thing that I didn't learn for a long time in business is that a defining aspect of a business when you work with other people, especially if you have authority in the business, is what does it take to get fired? What is the circumstance under which you will say, this is not a place for you anymore? And especially when you work with friends and family, I think you want to turn away from that question. But the more you care about the people you work with, the more important it is to know the answer to that question so you can clearly define your boundaries and let people know. So my perception is that I think the history of me learning about business, because we bucked a lot of trends when we started expected behavior. And a lot of it is learning about why normal businesses, why we call normal businesses, why traditional business ideas exist. Sometimes we come to understand that those are good ideas. And sometimes we understand why they exist, but we don't want to do those things. In this case, I think the way things traditionally happen is you give somebody a responsibility and you do your best to define the boundaries. And then if they don't succeed, you fire them. And you don't like that, but you do it. But there are other options. Sometimes people change or they have different talents than you might recognize. And so there becomes a question of commitment. If the business can survive, but it is less comfortable, are you willing to keep going? To say, okay, well, this person, we hired them to do this and they're not doing it well enough for the business to survive, but they are doing this thing well, and that is valuable for the business. Willing to move them over here and hire another person, even if that means maybe like less money goes in my pocket for a little while, because I wasn't really planning on hiring that person. Am I willing to train that person? How much emotional turmoil am I willing to go through? And I want everybody to know just in case you think that we're just some magical company that I have absolutely lost friends while doing this. I think that in most of those cases, if I knew then what I know now, I would not have lost them. But you don't know what you don't know. There is a risk. So I've described to you what I think the most important thing is. If you don't know when you would fire somebody, you are cruising for a bruising. Okay, Matt, thank you so much for being on the show. Unfortunately, we have to wind things down now, but we really appreciate you coming on. And we want to leave our listeners, if they want to talk more with you or learn more about you, where do you want them to go or your products? Well, we're always happy to have people using our products. Honestly, if people want to talk to me, I've never been a big social media guy. I know you mentioned my Twitter, but I've I, haven't, I don't think I've tweeted in like a decade. <laughs> oh, good. You are absolutely welcome to email me. It's uh, not even called Twitter anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yikes. You are absolutely welcome to email me, matt at expectedbehavior.com, and I will do my best to answer you. I will confess that I'm not the best emailer, so please be patient. Thanks to Basecamp's latest project, Hey Email. I read and answer far more in my email than I used to, but please, any questions you have, send them my way. Thanks, Matt. That's great. 